Today we're starting a brand new series entitled The Surprise Ending. I know that's, that's not what it says on there, but I did that because I like it. <laughs> sorry. Julie's like, that, that just doesn't look right. I'm sorry. I had a creative evening and I was like, ooh, I'm going to do this. So I'm, I'm calling the series The Surprise Ending. We're going to be taking a look at the book of Revelation. We're going to take a look specifically at the last few images or last few pictures that the book of Revelation gives us about the end of the world. Um, this is uh, one of the craziest books of the Bible. How many of you guys have actually read it? Okay, a few of you. So you know what I'm talking about. And those of you who don't, I encourage you to read it. You know, just, I mean, don't drop acid before you do, though. Just in case you're one of those people because you're going to have a bad trip, Right. I mean, this book has dragons and beasts with incredible, I mean, just horns everywhere and eyes everywhere and harlots. If you don't know what a harlot is, it's a hooker. Um, I mean, hookers riding beasts and flying animals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and boils and astronomical signs and meteors. It's crazy. It's just the craziest book. Um, it's, it seriously, is one of the crazier books in the Bible. Now, this might shock you to find out, but probably not. This is one of the most misread, misinterpreted, and misapplied books of the entire Bible. Ever since it was published, Christians have gone on an amazing journey, an amazing adventure of missing the point with it. I mean, it almost didn't make it into the Bible because people are like, okay, like, like the, the people that read it and got it, even they were like, okay, well, this is obviously like a spiritual book and it's a good thing, but man, should we really put it in there? Because people get buck wild with this thing. Maybe we ought to just keep this one for ourselves in the secret place. You know what I mean? But after a lot of deliberation, it actually made it into our Bible for us all, for us all to read. So here's some things you want to know from the get-go about it. Tradition would tell us that it was written by um, John. Uh, possibly John, the apostle of Jesus. And for those of you guys who went to Sunday school, you know, Peter, James, and John in a sailboat. How's that song go? Nobody's in Sunday school? Heathens. Anyways, yeah, that John, right? Uh, John, who was a follower of Jesus. That's what tradition would say is, tell us. But here's even more important than that, what you need to know. This book was written by a persecuted Christian. And he was writing to persecuted Christians. At the time this book was, or this, this book was published or written, um, Christianity was not a legit religion within the Roman Empire. It was not legit. And in many places was not looked on favorably. Uh, Christians were being martyred or killed for their faith. They were being imprisoned. One tradition would tell us that the, the writer of this book... Um, John was boiled in blistering oil three times and then banished to the, isle, the island of Patmos, which is kind of like their prison island of the day. Um, so that's some of the tradition that surrounds this book. But what you really need to remember is it's written by a persecuted Christian to severely persecuted Christians. And what type of literature is this? Well, we would call this apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. It's a, it's a specific genre of literature. That's also incredibly important to remember. Um, the apocalyptic genre of literature was filled with all kinds of fantasy and symbolism. Okay? 
all kinds of fantasy and symbolism. And the writer is describing um, what he's, he's describing experiences in incredible, crazy, fanciful ways. Apocalyptic is the distilling of religious experience, okay? Um, there's a rich tradition among the Hebrews of apocalyptic. And this letter, or this, um, uh, the book of Revelation, draws heavily on some Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament traditions. Ezekiel and Daniel, um, uh, a lot. It's very, he, he draws his imagery from these books of the past. That's very important, okay? Very important to remember. Um, I am trying my best to do a lot of uh, what's called exegetical work on this text. It means that I'm spending a lot of time studying it out. I'm spending a lot of time studying it out, a lot of time working with it. Remember, it was originally written in Greek, or Koine Greek, not in English. Okay? So um, trying to really mine this out and get at the point, what did it mean to its original hearers? Because that's really important. Because the tendency for people today, um, and, and a lot of Christians is to open the book of Revelation, have the book of Revelation open in one hand and have a newspaper open in the other and try to make what's happening in the newspaper fit into what's happening in Revelations. Wrong direction. Wrong direction. Um, this book, it is considered prophecy, but something you need to know about prophecy. Prophecy is, is two-pronged. Prophecy is foretelling the future, but more often, prophecy is forthtelling. It's God. It's it's the, God in moves in the speaker through the Holy Spirit to make his to make his voice, his will known to humanity. Prophecy in the forthtelling sense is God reading what's happening right now from His perspective, giving you God's perspective on what's happening right now. When it, I'm giving you a lot of this up front. Won't be going through all this next week. But it's really important to understand this book. That it was written to people, you know, somewhere probably in somewhere the first century. And it was written primarily to them about what was happening in their time. It's not primarily written about what's happening in our time. Bless you. Okay? It's primarily written to them about what's happening in their time trying to open their eyes and give them a way of understanding. It's written in rich symbolism that the original hearers would have understood, but because we are so distant from them in culture and language, um, we don't readily get the imagery or the symbolism in the text, okay? That's, it's very important to have those ideas in mind as we come to the text. Now, there are some points in Revelation that are prophecy in the foretelling sense. Okay? What we're going to do in this series is we're going to fast forward in the book of Revelation um, to the very last chapters and get the images that the book of Revelation gives us about the end, stuff that is still yet to come. Okay? And I thought you might want to be, you might want to know this because this is one of the most influential books. Um, of all time. It's had influence around the world. I thought you might want to know what it says about what's in store for you. Grab your Bible, open up to the book of Revelation, and fast forward to chapter 20. And we're going to pick it up in verse 11. 
Okay? Now hang with me, because this is going to be tough for some of us to hear. And John is writing about these visions that he's having. And starting in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. This is a good point. This is a good place to pray. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying here. Help us not to be uh, so freaked out by the imagery and the words here that we miss the real point and we miss your heart in all of this. Help me as I attempt to minister this text in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beyond all the wild imagery, I think here's the big idea we want to get from this text this morning. God wins, justice prevails, and life goes on. God wins, justice prevails, and life goes on. Take a look at that. As we read the text, one of the striking features immediately is John says, and I saw a great white throne. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. What is a throne? You know, who sits on a throne? A ruler. What's the idea? What's the idea here? Now, the preceding chapters of Revelation give us all kinds of imagery. Right? And I want to make this point. Exactly how everything in history will unfold is not the point of the text. Jesus told his disciples repeatedly, you're not going to know. I mean, he told them some things, but more often than not, he was giving them cues in to things that were going to happen right then, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem within their lifetimes. Okay? It's a, it, it, it tends to be it tends to lead us down wrong paths when we open the book and we think that in it is a formula for discovering when the end happens. It's just not the point. All of this is moving in the direction of this moment where God wins. That history has a trajectory and a goal. That's where this ends up. God wins. Do you guys remember this? Show my next picture, will you? Chris, please. You remember this? I mean, you all survived the end of the world that was on May 21st, 2011, according to FamilyRadio.com. This 80-something-year-old gentleman sat down, I'm sure, with the texts of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, and he worked them out like math problems to come up to the exact moment and the exact time, no less, when the end would come. 
And we all awaited the end of the world that day. And wah, 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 it didn't come. Would you believe me if I told you that guy predicted the same thing would happen, I think, in 1994? I could be wrong on the exact year, but the point is he did it before. This is a total rabbit trail, okay? Just bear with me. No matter where you go for the rest of your Christian life, will you please stop supporting people who do that? Are you with me? It blows my mind that Christians can continue to do this. They put billboards everywhere. That was good Christian money that did that. Billboards aren't cheap. I mean, if the guy did it once, we should be like, all right, dude, sorry. I mean, we forgive you, but I'm not giving you any more money. How many of you guys remember the Y2K scare? I don't know how many false prophet Christian teachers made tons of money by selling their books. You know what I did on Y2K? I went to Knott's Berry Farm. And if you're worried if the world is going to end on December whatever this year, it's not. It's just not the point. This is not the point of what's being said here. The point is, God wins. God does win. God loves us. God loves humanity. He loves the world. One of the most, it used to be the most quoted verse of the Bible. Right? We learned it as children, some of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. That's what God wants. That's God's heart. God does have enemies. God never intended the world to be as tragic as it is. It's tragic that we should have to have a woman's self-defense thing. What kind of world is this that we've created for ourselves? God loves us too much to let this continue. And he is on mission, reconciling the world to himself and to one another. And he will win. That's the point. That's where this all is headed. God wins. Justice prevails. Justice prevails. In the text, we saw some, some other really interesting imagery. The dead gathered before the throne, the great and the small. Those who were seemingly important in life and those who weren't so important gathered before the throne. We saw books opened. You can show the next picture. I don't think they were actually referring to this many books. In the Hebrew tradition, there's, there's like two books. But the books are opened. And then there's a lake of fire. Now, that one scares me a bit. But if I had to have a choice, I don't know. Would I rather be burned to death or drowned? Hmm. I don't know. That's total rabbit trail as well. But a lake of fire being chucked into it just sounds like a bad day. Just sounds like a really bad day to me. We see the imagery of Hades and Hades and the sea giving up their dead. Why is Hades and the sea giving up their dead? Well, back in those days, especially among uh, the Hellenic people, they were they were they were they had certain ways of looking at things. So how many of you guys saw Pirates of the Caribbean? What was it? Was it Dead Man's Chest or Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End? You remember because um, Davy Jones, right? Davy Jones. <laughs> Davy Jones turned into that because he wasn't doing his job. His job was to ferry the dead souls who died at sea, you know, to where they're supposed to go. 
that kind of idea was around when this text was written. People were afraid that if you died at sea, you didn't go to the place that everybody else goes. You didn't go there. Hades was like the place of the dead underground. And it would make sense why they would think flame and fire is there. They lived in a volcanic region. And there was places where there was fissures in the earth, openings, cracks, where they could see like lava and volcanoes, right? It just makes sense that they would conceptualize death in those terms. And they knew that they bury their dead. Well, that's Hades and then the sea giving up their dead. And so we have this imagery. But what's the big idea? The big idea is that justice prevails. From, a, from the time you were a child, you probably were told, life's not fair. Stop crying. Nobody said life is fair. How many of you guys think it sucks that life's not fair? Me. I think it sucks that life's not fair. I wish it was fair. Life's not fair, though. Think about this. There's, there, here is an idea that there will be ultimate accountability. Now, that sounds awful. Like, there's going to be a judgment day. That sounds, that sounds really negative and scary. And, and on one hand, it is. But also look at it like this. Without a day of accountability, life becomes really, really absurd. Morality and ethics, generally, you know, doing the right thing, the whole idea of a right thing, kind of goes by the wayside. Why do the right thing? Who says what the right thing is? And if there is no day of ultimate accountability, who cares? Why would I do the right thing? What is this idea? Maybe through the evolutionary process, we biologically became predisposed to having an idea of a right thing so that we could survive as a species. Maybe that's the idea of morality at best. At worst, maybe the idea of morality is there's a few people who are forcing their will upon the rest of us. But in either case, it really doesn't matter whether we do it or not if there's no ultimate accountability. There is no judgment. Are you guys tracking with me? It makes no difference. The path of self-interest is the best path. If there is, you know, nothing else really would make sense. I mean, this is an extreme case, but it really wouldn't matter... If there's no accountability, ultimate accountability, it really wouldn't matter whether you live like Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler. What would it matter? They both end in death. They both go on the ground. They're dead. If that's the end of it, they don't even know they're dead. They don't care. Hitler's like, ooh, I'm dead. Oh, never mind. He doesn't even think. Tracking with me? You guys ever heard of this woman, Anne Rand? I mean, her stuff's really popular right now with, with certain political leaders and ways of envisioning how the economy ought to run. And she wasn't really a believer in God and organized religion and all that. She had her own way of looking at things. But I found this interesting. She wrote, Accept the fact that achievement of your happiness is the only moral purpose of your life and that happiness not pain or mindless self-indulgence, is the proof of your moral integrity. Since it is the proof and the result of your loyalty to the achievement of your values. I mean, that's a whole lot of words to simply say, do what makes you happy, that's the only thing that matters. In her view. 
she, she actually wrote a book that praised selfishness. And there are people that say that's how we ought to, that's, that kind of thinking should be the basis on how economics work in our country. I find it hard to be a Christian and buy into all of her stuff. I know that there are Christians that do. I find it a bit difficult. But she is totally in tune with this idea that if there is no ultimate accountability, no judgment, then why not be selfish? That seems to be the only thing that makes sense. I find it interesting. I was thinking about love and asking, what is the opposite of love? If love is selflessly giving ourselves for the good of others, what is the opposite of that? My first thought would be hate. But then on second thought, maybe it's selfishness. But this great white throne and this this moment coming in the future tells us justice will prevail. When it's all said and done, it will be fair. When it's all said and done, it will be fair. That really matters to me. The last image that I'm looking at this morning is this image on this judgment day of this one book called the Book of Life. The Book of Life. Apparently there's people's names written in it. And they escape this judgment. They escape this lake of fire. What's the point? Life goes on. It's not God's intention to eliminate life. To destroy the world. He created it to be good. He loves us. Life is the point. The God's intention here is to save us. Save us from death. Save us from this world that we've created for ourselves. Some of us in this room are doing really well. Others of us have walked through some really rotten stuff in our lives. God's intention is to redeem us to reconcile us to himself, to heal us, to make us whole, to put the broken pieces back together again. That's what his intentions are. His intentions are not to hate us and judge us and annihilate us. His intentions are not to make us suffer for all eternity. His intention is to heal us and give us the kind of life he always wanted us to have. A kind of life that is so good that you can't even imagine it today. I can't imagine it. I don't know what life is like without the evil. But God knows what it's like, and that's what he wants. Maybe the point is, uh, as I read this text, I'm looking at that book, and I'm going, out of all the, the stuff, I'm wondering, how do I, I want my name in there. How do I get my name in there? I think we already kind of talked about it, that God made it simple. Remember that verse that we quoted a minute ago? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. 
a life that's eternal, not in quantity alone, but in quality. A life of a whole different quality. Now, if you love your life in this world, you're probably like, eh, I could take that or leave it. Like, eh. But if you're like me, you're like, yeah, I really want that. I want a different quality of life. A few years back, my, I, I uh, preached a funeral for my grandfather. He was one of the most godly men I knew. He only had an eighth grade education, was born to parents um, who were, lived in a small coal mining town, and my great-grandfather was a coal miner. Did it most of his life, lived most of his life underground. My grandfather was a millwright. He worked in an in a, uh, aluminum mill uh, for the majority of his life. Worked hard. With all that he had and all he was, he did love Jesus. He loved Jesus. He served people. I'm standing here right now because of his influence on my life. I watched the man give and give and give. He raised two daughters, and he went through some really tough times. But I watched him love Jesus. I got to live with him for three years. It changed my life. I closed his eyes with my own hands the day he died of cancer. He wasn't supposed to die when he did. Why did he get cancer? Why did this happen? The answer to that is, when he first started working at this mill back in the day, they worked with something called asbestos. It's a material that's kind of like fine glass particles that you could pour molten metal into and hold the mold with your bare hand. It's amazing stuff. Well, this stuff was cancerous, caused cancer. It also gives you something called mesothelioma, which is a horrible way to die in and of itself. Those fibers get down into your lungs and they cut your lungs, and then it produces scar tissue, and then it cuts its way out of the scar tissue. And so slowly, over a period of years, it's like drowning. Now, the company, on there's records that show the company knew that this caused mesothelioma. They knew it caused cancer. They knew. It wasn't that they didn't know. They knew. But they wanted to make as much money as possible, because that's what you should do when you're in business. But to accomplish their goal, they didn't give their workers the proper, uh, the, the proper safety equipment. They didn't give my grandpa something to breathe through that would keep him safe. And it was part of the business plan. Because they know it takes a long time for cancer to kick in. Right about the time my grandpa got mesothelioma was right about the time that company closed its doors and moved to Mexico. Before he died, my, my grandpa got a check for compensation from the company of about 350 bucks. He was so disgusted by it that he just signed the back of the check and gave it to the church. What a slap in the face for a lifetime given to this company that didn't value him enough to protect him. You can imagine Julie and I standing there looking at him going, is this the way this man should die? Is this what he deserves? 
for a lifetime. He wasn't perfect, but a lifetime of loving Jesus and loving us. Is this right? Why is this happening? I had no answers, still have no answers, and it still hurts. Is it right? No. No. It's not right. This text today, this text that we read today, helps me. Because it tells me that God wins, justice prevails, and life goes on. tells me that death doesn't have the last word in my grandpa's life, and it won't have the last word in my life either. It won't have the last word in your life. It tells me that when it's all said and done, my grandpa will be rewarded the way he should be. It tells me that those who took his life for profit will be held accountable, as they should be. My grandpa used to tell me, even on his deathbed, he would say, Steve, no matter what anybody does, I'm going to serve the Lord. No matter what anybody else does, no matter what a preacher does when he fails, no matter what a company does when they, no matter what anybody does, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'll never forget it. And he did. Till his last breath. God wins. Justice prevails, and life goes on. God wins. Justice prevails. Life goes on. I would encourage you, entrust your life to Jesus. Entrust the path of your life to Jesus. Do what is right, even when it doesn't seem to be getting you ahead Do what is right, even when it doesn't seem to be getting you ahead on your job or with public opinion. No matter what anyone else does, serve the Lord. In the end, you're going to be glad you did. Stand with me.